how's your um how's your kid she's good she's uh developing pretty quick um she actually, actually we just got off um talking about the whole uh marketing part um and she started standing by herself in the middle of the floor she stood up and stood there for like 10 seconds and we both really? were like my wife and i were in shock like is she doing this right now yeah she's only six months old too so it's pretty early dang man what's the what's the roadmap for kids i don't know anything when people go they're only six months and they're already walking i'm kind of like i don't really know what that <laughs> means my wife kendall i'll just call her kendall for easier it's much easier instead of saying my wife um kendall was reading that usually kids are supposed to be you know walking around early would be nine months i guess and then late is like like 12 to 13, 15 months i guess is a late walking time but i don't think that the the whole by the book thing even is true because every kid's different i mean right there's got to be my, a lot of variations yeah there's so many different timelines for everything like you'll like um a buddy of mine that i used to work with he and i had kids that are a month apart there's some things that his kid is doing that sawyer hasn't done yet and my kid is just you know there's other parts that i'm we're like oh she's almost about to walk and his kid can't sit up by himself yet but her kid or his kid was uh laughing and giggling way before mine was so there's a lot of there's what's the average age for laughing and giggling i i don't even know i i thought it was supposed to be like three to five months but mine just started probably a week ago really getting into like the giggle and the laugh but maybe all just aren't that funny maybe probably it's probably (laughs) probably just me i'm not a very funny guy anyway (laughs) <laughs> that's cool though man what, what a cool feeling to see your kid laugh that must be awesome yeah yeah and i was listening to one of your guys podcasts before and your your guy uh that you're talking to hit it on the head you know there's you get it oh, you hugh. get yeah hugh he was uh he was explaining like you know there's a build-up and definitely when that kid comes in the world it's a life changer it i i can't imagine my life without it right now it's completely well, speaking of things you can't imagine your life without, welcome to Round the Campfire podcast. This is our 13th episode. This is co-host John Green with uh, co-host Ty Vernon. Hello, Ty. Hello, John. You guys can all see us now. Welcome to the, what did you say, John? $3 million set? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Give or take. Um, yeah, and today we have Dan with us. Officer Dan, how you doing? Good. How are you guys? Good, man. Good to be here. You got a drink today? I do. I've got my mango cart. Excellent. I got my shiner. Not a huge beer drinker, but if there is one, that's about all I'll drink. Well, awesome, man. Cheers. Welcome to uh, Around the Campfire. Cheers. Uh, So where are you at right now? Arizona? Yeah, I'm out here in uh, central Arizona. around the Phoenix metropolitan area, the Maricopa County. Nice. And um, so we kind of already talked about this earlier before we started, but what do you do for work? Uh, I'm, I'm a law enforcement officer. I've been doing it for about six years now, just cracking out of six years onto my seventh, gone by fast. 
Nice, man. And now that's not six years total at this department, right? You had previous experience? Correct. Uh, I've, I worked down in uh, Southern California uh, for a number of years and in about in a 2020, I moved out here. And why'd you move? Was it specifically like job related or? Um, I would say it's about 80, 20 job related um, being that 80% of it was job related. The, the other 20 was financial and just prosperity reasons, really. It's definitely cheaper to live like anywhere but California and New York. Yeah, that is that is for sure. Now, it, was California just that bad? Or like, can you get into the specifics of why it's 80-20, like you got out because of the job? Um, the, the main reason was what we're here to talk about today was the whole use of force um, policies that were going on uh, with the state, not so much the agencies. Um, they kind of have to, you know, tailor themselves to whatever the state law says. But there was a, a pretty big swing in California for uh, law enforcement officers and their ability to use force um, without basically second guessing themselves. What specifically was that? Like what uh, policies or like procedures did they put in that you would like essentially second guess yourself? So um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's Graham versus Connor case law, which like the guy self defense. Go ahead, Dan. You guys good? Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. So there's there's Graham versus Connor case law, which is essentially the backbone of police use of force, along with Tennessee versus Gardner, which is another case law that um, all law enforcement pretty much base their 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 use of force levels and their use of force policies off of, along with state law. Um, in California, there was an assembly bill basically that was passed that really honed in the verbiage of their law that almost made it to the point where um, you had to be in a imminent known danger of life or bodily harm for, for uh, critical use of force or, or deadly use of force or serious use of force. And so that can I, yeah, what's up? Can I ask clarifying clarifying questions about that? Because you said you have to be in imminent danger of serious bodily injury or death. Does that mean you there must be a literal danger, or you must have a reasonable belief that there is a danger? Yeah. So the the verbiage changed um, in their assembly bill, uh, and it specifically spells out um, imminent. So you know that's up for debate. What what it what imminent is in each use of force but you know that one word where it used to be what normal Graham versus connor was is the three-pronged test um which would have been the reasonableness standard it it kind of makes it more into an uh a subjective standard so a lot of use of forces you know 2020 hindsight you aren't able you at in the middle of a use of force, you're not able to, you know, be that, you know, 30,000 foot view and take into consideration every single aspect of it all the time. Now, there's instances where some experienced officers can pull themselves back and 
really hone in and see. But again, Graham versus Connor is based off of what a reasonable officer with the same amount of experience would have done. So when they changed that verbiage, um, it really made you second guess, am I in a justified situation? And what are the, yes, beginning at the lowest stage, I guess, would be verbal commands and then going up to deadly force. Can you kind of give us the spectrum of what that is? So you're even, you're lo- you, you can even go lower than um, command, pr- or uh, you, you could even go even lower than that. Um, being in uniform and being there is a level of force. You know, it's not, you don't walk around in a regular t-shirt every day and someone walks past you and, you know, if you get into a verbal they're going to chirp back at you for the most part. But if you're in uniform and you give a lawful command, you know, that uniform is a first contact use of force. So it starts even at the, at that level. Um, and it just goes up from there. It's a, it's more of a spectrum than it is, you know, I guess you would say, uh, if this, then that it, it kind of varies on a spectrum. Right. So what's what's above, like a show of force, I guess. Uh, a show of force, and then it goes up into uh, your verbal. You know um, whether or not you're using a tone of voice or giving a direct order, things of that nature. Um, hand motions are even a use of force because uh, you go into search and seizure. I can seize somebody without saying anything, and that is some sort of use of force. Like if I go like this. I'm making you do something with just the wave of my finger and it's implied, yeah. oh, he's telling me to come there. So that even is ease of force. So you have that, you go into direct commands and then you go into what would be uh, control holds or um, uh, control holds would be your next up, like holding somebody in a position of discomfort or disadvantage. You're not necessarily hurting them you're not trying to you know hurt the person but you're holding them so that they're not escaping so you're handcuffing um control holds you know even a hand on the shoulder like hey don't stand up that's a that's a control hold and then from there you go into your your punches strikes kicks takedowns um from after your takedowns you go into your taser which is those are all intermediate uses of force and then it used to be intermediate to use your baton, but I'm pretty sure in most uh, departments, using a baton has gone into almost a critical or a um, a pretty high use of force. And the carotid restraint, people like to call it the chokehold, but it's not a chokehold, it's a carotid restraint. That has gone into a... Um, that's a critical use of force now. So it's, it, there's, it's changed a lot since, you know, prior years. It, it always cracked me up. Like, cause every cop I've ever met has called that like a carotid restraint or something like you're choking him out. Is, is that pretty much it? No, like you're no, cutting Dan, off the blood. Dan, tell head? him about your, don't you have wrestling or like, so I've, I've practiced jujitsu for a number of years now. Uh, I would put it probably on the same as, um, my experience in law enforcement just about six years um 
and it's actually a huge difference. Uh, so, so when you when you say choke, you're implying that you're blocking air from entering your lungs or into your airway, right? When you oh, say I was, the, I was more implying you're stopping the blood from going to the brain. That's different. So when you say choke, you're implying that you're you're blocking off pretty much blood and or air to the to your body or to your brain, right? So when you apply a chokehold, a an actual chokehold, you're using what would either be the the part the center line of your forearm to either to block either the blood and or air. So when you apply a carotid restraint, there is no pressure whatsoever on your trachea or your windpipe at all. So the only pressure is on your carotid arteries. And when, and, and that goes into the crook of your elbow and literally it makes a gap. So you can still breathe. There's there I've been I've been choked out or carotid restrained out uh, too many times that I probably should stop getting tapped out. I should probably tap before um, I start losing uh, brain cells from that. But um, there's there it, there's a big difference, and that's why it's it's very debatable as to if it should be allowed in certain situations that don't amount to uh, deadly use of force. Because, you know, there's proven facts. You know, I'm not an expert in uh, anatomy and the body, but there are proven studies that it takes a lot to die from a carotid restraint. Now, is it dangerous if you don't know what you're doing? Absolutely. Right. And that's where the... How many cops, I mean, I, I'm sure this is like a tough statistic to figure out, but just based on your experience, how many cops would you trust with doing a correct carotid versus people that don't know what they're doing? That's a really tough question. And I've always prided myself on being completely and painfully honest. And there's not a lot, honestly. There's not a lot of cops that train enough and are and the department does not train them enough to apply that. And I think that's a lot of the reason why it's been escalated to a deadly force option. Because that makes a lot of, yeah, a lot of sense. And, it, and I, I don't know directly, and I'm not trying to quote any command staff or anything on making their decisions on policies. But if I was a commander and some mayor or a governor came to me and said, fix this, that's my route because it's cheaper and it's less liability. Now, the correct way would be to train all your officers to protect themselves and to know how to use their tools correctly. You know, we spend hours and hours and hours in the academy and post-academy learning how to shoot our firearms, learning how to um, use our voice and talk to people. But there's I would say a, a third, if not less, time committed to the appropriate training for that one specific maneuver, which takes all of three minutes to explain to somebody and then another two minutes to, you know, demonstrate on even a dummy. And you do you do repetitions like everything else and you could be proficient. They just don't want to take the time to do it. 
That's too bad because I've been, I mean, I've also been choked out plenty of times too. And I've choked people out before and it's, it's 10, 15 seconds. They pass out and they wake up, you know, pretty soon after that. And they're fine. They're totally fine every single time. Yeah. It seems like for a vast, vast majority of people, they're going to wake up fine. Like after they get passed out from a carotid restraint. Quote yeah. You know, I don't, I've never read anything of someone dying from it. I remember like the, those team, remember that thing back in the day, like teenagers would breathe real heavy and then hold their breath and they'd make each other pass out. And there was like a kid that died from that. But, um, you know, for the amount of time does, as it's applied to somebody and the ratio of someone actually dying from that soul cause, it's pretty rare. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there is the the factor too, that it just doesn't look that good, even though you choking someone out and putting like making them unconscious within five to 15 seconds would do significantly less harm than you taking a baton to them, for example. Oh like, yeah. I, I would much rather you, punching Yeah. Or even punching them in the face. I would much rather you knock me out with a carotid restraint than use a baton taser OC spray or even punch me. Right. And, and that's another thing too. Use of forces are not pretty. They're not, they're not good looking. They're not like the movies where like the guy gets like leg sweeped and taken into custody in two seconds or like they, you know, if you do get into a deadly force encounter where, you know, you shoot somebody, it's not one shot and they give up and hit the ground and you render aid. Um, when someone, you know, uses force, it's, it's a violent action and it's a necessary action obviously, but it should be taken seriously to the point where once that violent action has worked and you have a, um, an effective tool and they're taking the custody game is over and everyone goes home safe at that point. But that's what a lot of people that are looking in on you law enforcement now don't understand. Like it's not a pretty sight when cops use force. Yeah. I've definitely noticed. Um, so I've, I was a prosecutor for about a year and a half. I've done defense work for maybe three years now, not a total, probably more than that. But I have noticed that when watching body cams and everything else, having officers, officers seem to be very hesitant to use force. And that seems to draw out the the incident to where it just escalates further and further, where if they exactly. would have used more force earlier on, faster and swifter, that would have you know, solved the issue just like that. And everyone could just move on safer and go home safe. But it you, seems you like can, people are just very hesitant to actually use force. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head on that. And, you know, from personal experience, you know, I've, I've dealt with that exact scenario and it led to a worse scenario. If I would have just done certain things before it got that bad and taken it into custody, you know, it, and, swift violent action actually leads to less injury you know if you would have just taken that opportunity to do a takedown and go knee to belly which in jujitsu is a very effective move especially when you're in law enforcement because you don't want to be you don't want the person on their on their chest on their you know belly side down you want them belly side up for the most part um until you're ready to take them into custody but you know if you do that quick takedown, need a belly. Yeah. It's not going to look good because you just threw this dude on the ground or female on the ground, but it beats backing up to your, 
to the point where you have nowhere else to go and this guy's now you know gonna fight you and you have to tase him then your taser doesn't work or for some reason your taser doesn't work or your pepper spray doesn't work and this guy attacks you and now you have to use deadly force or something even greater you know right who were we talking to on our podcast last about that was it ethan or was it joey or was it both of them because one of them was saying the exact same thing that we just said right now where you need to meet the appropriate level of aggression with the appropriate use of force quickly or else they get bold and then it continues like what you were saying yeah i forget who that was but i definitely agree that the second they come in boldened it's just this is kind of game over. It just becomes much more difficult for everyone involved. If so, uh, if someone calls your bluff, uh, you're, you better have a really good backup plan or close backup nearby. Right. So random question. Um, we can get into some deeper stuff after this one. But you mentioned like you back up and you get kind of quartered and then all of a sudden you have to use your taser and it might not work. It seems like I've seen so many videos of it either tagging clothing and not going all the way through or just flat out something missing and it's just not working? Like, How often does that happen? Um, it's actually pretty often that it doesn't yeah. work. Um, in my experience, at least. I don't know. There might be some other officers that are great shots with it and it's worked every time. But um, yeah, it's just the way that it's designed. You know, you got to have a pretty near perfect shot and you can't be too far away from them either because the, the cord one and unwind itself all the way and then it rips and it doesn't work or it doesn't reach them. And then you have to encounter, so say you're, you're, you're working your beat and this, you get into a use of force or a, a situation where you're going to pull your taser. One of the main things people forget to um, uh, address or acknowledge is clothing. You know, if, if I was to, if you had two more shirts on, John, you probably wouldn't feel the taser. Really? It's pretty, is that a pretty thick sweatshirt? Uh, yeah, it's I like, think. Yeah. yeah. So if thick. you had a couple more, just, you know, maybe it was a cold night and you threw a second sweatshirt on, might not work. There's a very high chance that it might not go through. You know, there's been times where we've been at calls where these these criminal or uh, suspects, um, we had to tase them or at least try. And we look at them, we're like, nope, we can't tase them because they have, you know, one of those denim jackets on and it won't go through it. So you have to revert to another less lethal use of force first. And one of those is less, less lethal would be the beanbag rounds, right? Yeah, the super sock rounds. Super okay. sock. And so how do you, when is that deployed? Wait, and you how say does that work? super sock or super suck? Both, actually. You know, I would not want to get, I would not want to get hit by one of those. I feel bad for any, <laughs> any suspects that are on the wrong side of the super sock because it super sucks. Um, but those are usually deployed in those instances at when you need a less than lethal and I, and I call it less than lethal because I'm so used to less lethal means it's just a little less lethal, but less than lethal means it's not exactly lethal, but it can be, but, um, you would deploy that in a situation where a taser wouldn't reach them but you still need that less than lethal option. So I, I'm vaguely, don't quote me on it, but I think the closest you can shoot somebody with, and I'd have to, I need to, obviously I need to brush up on it, but it's 30 feet before it is considered a lethal use of force. 
So if they're within 30 feet of you and you hit them with it, you have to be able to justify a lethal use of force. But after 30 feet, and I think their maximum effective range is about 120 feet, um, they're the same level as a taser. Interesting. And this is all happening. Adrenaline's pumping. Everything is just lightning fast. And you have to sit there and go, 30 feet or not, I don't want to. And then that's the, hesitation. that's the hesitation you were talking about. And I think yep. we all know what how dangerous that hesitation is. But just for the people listening, they might not know. How dangerous is that second guessing and hesitation? Um, well, it almost cost me my life. Uh, I can tell you that. And it, in the moment, it might not seem like long, like a very short amount of time, but it is milliseconds to seconds of a window of not doing something can cost you your life. Absolutely. And then, so just because you just mentioned it, uh, could you tell, I actually, I think I've seen the video of yours. I think you showed me. I don't know any of the context though. Um, yeah, your I, I, use of force. Um, so in Southern California, I was involved in a, uh, officer involved shooting at my last apartment, um, in California. And basically it's cleared out. It's all good. It was a good shoot. Um, no litigation stuff. It's been clear now since 2018. So I'm perfectly good to talk about. I just won't name names and that'll be that. But, um, so what was the original call that she showed up for? So it wasn't a call. It was, so I'll explain the entire story. So in, about three months prior to the actual shooting itself, I was working in a part of a town or part of a city uh, where uh, I tried to pull over a vehicle for some violations. Um, when I pulled it over, it ran from me and we got into a pursuit. Um, I got the license plate. The guy ended up doing a, a U-turn right in front of me. So I was able to see through the front windshield and I can ID him pretty well. There was no doubt about who he was. Um, so after this pursuit was over, I, uh, I took the license plate and I looked up where it was registered to and I went over to the house. So when we were at the house, we knocked on the door, woman come to the door and we asked her, Hey, do you know where your car is? And she goes, Oh yeah, my, uh, my ex has it right now. He was just driving it. He just left. Oh, who's your ex? Oh, you know, um, Jim, Jim Smith was my ex. Okay. Is this him? And we showed him a picture. She goes, yep, that's sure him. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. And we left. Um, so I wrote, you know, a PC warrant for him or PC want, uh, which is probable cause want. And it was basically a, it's a, a warrant essentially for people that don't know what the difference between a PC want and a, a warrant is. So essentially it's a warrant. Um, and about three months later, uh, I, I had done some research on him and I, I tracked where he lived. Um, and I knew that he lived in this one certain part of the city, but I never worked there. So I always worked the Southern part of the city and, uh, where he was at was in the North side. So one day my partner, one of my partners didn't show up for work, uh, called in sick and I was low man on a total pole. So I got told to move areas or beats per se. And I was now working that beat where he lived. So being a young, enthusiastic uh, police officer. I went to find his car because I 
I intentionally went to go find the car to tow the car that way in law enforcement, when they have the ability to tow cars, they use that as a way of investigation to get the person to come in to the station to claim their car or it's, it's a tactic. So well, played. well played. Slick. <laughs> I'm being honest. I was going to tow the car. So this guy had to come down to the station because I know he wasn't going to tell his ex that he got his car towed. So I was going to tow the car. I was going to impound it because it was used in a crime and I was going to wait for him to come pick it up. And when I got the call from the towing agency or, or the station, Hey, Jim Smith is here to pick up his car. I was going to roll over there and arrest him for the, the, the warrant. So that didn't go as planned. So, um, when I was rolling through his neighborhood, there was two addresses. I went by one and I saw the, I saw the car. I was like, Oh, there it is. And I rolled a little bit further and I saw him and I was like, Oh, there's Jim Smith right there. So I rolled down my window. I confirm who it is by calling out his name. He turns and looks at me and I did him perfectly, you know, picture perfect idea of who he was. So I got out to contact him. And as soon as I contacted him, it was a fight. It was a, a, a Donnie Brook. So a little back, back history on Jimmy Smith. He was wanted for assault on a police officer. Um, and he had been convicted of some other crimes relating to assault on uh, jail staff. And he had some other felony charges. I'm not exactly sure what they were. I think they were DUI related or hit and run related. I'm not exactly sure on it. But he was known in the criminal justice system for fighting law enforcement. So I didn't look that far into him. Well, I did, but I didn't take it as as serious um, as I should have. So as soon as I contacted him, uh, it was an immediate fight. Um, you know, took, we took each other to the ground. Um, at one point we stood back up, I threw him against the car, um, grabbed back onto him. We went back down to the ground and not knowing it at the time he was drunk and he was on meth. So if anybody doesn't know what alcohol and a meth do when you're on it at the same time is you become pretty numb to pain and it's very impressive on what, uh, these drugs can do to your pain receptors and your cognitive function when you're, when you're under them. So he wasn't feeling any pain. Um, as I was on top of him, and I, and this is right when I had started training. So I had probably been doing jujitsu six months at the time. And so I took what I knew and I applied it into this, but, um, he wasn't feeling any pain. Uh, I elbowed, I, I threw some haymaker of elbows on him into his face and his teeth. Um, nothing. There was, you looked, I remember looking right into his eyes and there was zero registering of any pain whatsoever on this guy. So we start fighting. And like I, like before use of force is on a spectrum. So he had already jumped up to that assaultive high risk category where strikes, kicks, knees, taser, all that stuff is now in play because it's one step above. He hadn't hit me yet, but the likelihood, and he was definitely fighting me, um, was there. 
So I attempted to tase him. Even though we were chest to chest, I was in what's called uh, side control. And we were chest to chest, chest to chest, and I had an outer vest on, so my taser was on my breast pocket area. So as I reach in, I grab my taser, and I'm about to pull it out to just uh, to drive stun or discharge it on him. And he grabs my hand and has superhuman drug strength and rips it off the taser. Taser goes flying. No more taser. So the fight continues. You know, we're struggling with each other. Drop, you know, another couple elbows on him. Still nothing. Um, And during the fight, he reaches down. And I don't know if uh, Ethan, Officer Ethan has said this about the jails but when someone's been incarcerated a long time it's likely that they've practiced on how to disarm people so he reaches over and i feel his hand on my holster and my and the way that the holster work is is a hood so you pull the hood down and your gun comes out um i feel my whole my my hood go down and i reach over i peel his hand off of the holster and i flip the the uh, hood back up. So the fight continues and he reaches over again, give him verbal commands. Hey man, stop doing that or you're going to get shot. You know, he's reaching for my gun. He's trying to pull it out of the holster. Um, he's pulling at my belt. You know, he's reaching at my, my tools on my vest. So, you know, deadly force is on that cusp of being justified. So, as the fight continues, I attempt to do what's called a mount because I, I was getting tired at this point and I wanted to end it. I just was like, I'm sick of fighting this guy. I'm going to get on top of him and I'm going to render him unconscious any way I can so I can stop this fight. So I go to get on top of him and my feet get too close together and I roll on my back. Little to my knowledge, my hood was down on my holster because of when we were fighting over the playing the slap game on my holster i had never i didn't know it was still down after um i had peeled his hand away for the second time so as i rolled over i hear what will be ingrained in my brain for the rest of my life is a metallic tink on the ground and it's my firearm my firearm has fallen out of my holster and is now wedged under my right uh, thigh and tucked basically being protected halfway by my thigh. Um, we both kind of like it, it, you, in the video, you can't see it, but it was a millisecond that felt like 30 seconds where we both stopped kind of like paying attention to what we were doing to each other. And we both like recognized that the gun was on the ground and we both went for it. So if you watch the video, he lunges straight for the gun and I beat him to the, to the gun to, to cover it. And we hand fought over it for what feels like 30 minutes, but it was only maybe a second. And that's when I was able to uh, retain it. And I shot once striking him. After that, he punched me a couple times in the face. He was, like I said, that one, that one bullet magic trick doesn't work. I hit him. He hit me a couple times in the face and took off running. Where'd you hit him? Um, I hit him like right in the forearm. So as he was punching me, if he didn't punch me at the time that he got hit, he would have been done. It would have gone right into his chest, but it actually hit him in the forearm. And then the bullet ricocheted up. I think it went up into his like elbow 
or like upper bicep area. So he gets up and he takes off running uh, back into his house and then SWAT gets called out and it's a barricade. He barricaded himself in there for a couple hours and kudos to him because he didn't bleed out. He knew how to do something and he, he got lucky. He got real lucky. <clears throat> and that seems like that was pretty new in your career, right? Yep. Uh, you so said I had, when you started jujitsu, which is about how long have you been a cop? Yeah. So I had worked in a large metropolitan jail or a large county jail in Southern California um, for about a year before I hit the road in a different city, um, just out of the county, and. I had been off of field training for about eight months at the time. So I had like no time on. Yeah, that's very new. It was very yeah, new. When you showed me that video, it's it's pretty quick. Yeah, and it was one of the crazy things about the videos is you can see the force behind your hits. Cause yeah. I don't know if, if you've ever met him, hmm? you would not want to fight him. Like he is like you're built for like a fighter. And so when you, when I was seeing those hits, it's like, how is that guy still up? It was crazy. Yeah. When I, when I hit him, you could hear, I remember hearing the, the echo from the back of his head out of his mouth from him hitting the ground and no registration of any type of pain on this guy, just wide eyed and was grunting and making weird noises still. And just no, no raising, nothing clicked that he was getting hit in the face. I was like, in that moment, I was like, oh, shit. It's like, this guy doesn't do anything. Well, shoot, man. Glad you're all right after that. Yeah, I am too. That could have gone south, like even much more south. Yeah, and that's why I have such a passion for use of force and you know training and all that kind of stuff now and you know, a lot of i don't think anyone's ever explained this to me and you don't really see it in movies but what I, I assume they're not like okay officer dan go on home now you know great job today at work i assume you had to stay there and talk to people and yeah report so, what's that like so i'll explain i can explain that in whole that that's it's a very interesting um process to go through so at the the shooting took place at about seven seven fifteen, actually exactly seven fifteen. Now that I think about it, and um, it's crazy how your memory your I can I can't remember things from three years ago if you tried, but this exact moment I can remember pinpoint details. But regardless, so the shooting took place about seven fifteen. Went to the hospital um, just because I had some bruises on my nose, my knees were all scuffed up. Uh, they cleaned me out, and actually when I when I shot him, his blood, like I hit an artery in his, in his wrist. So it spurted everywhere. It was on my foot, on my face. It was all in my hair. Um, it was all over my chest. It was in my mouth. It was everywhere. So they had to give me some antibiotics and all that stuff for the, the whole blood ingestion stuff. So after you go to the hospital, um, your representative comes, uh, with you a representative from the department union comes and sits with you no matter what. And they stay there until the end. So, um, while I was in the hospital, my union rep showed up 
sat there with me. Um, we didn't talk about anything. We were just talking about normal stuff because um, I can't ask you any questions about it. Like, obviously, it's an, it's an active investigation. So, so they, who, who is this union rep? Is he a lawyer? No. So there's two types of representation uh, when you're uh, an officer. So you have your union rep that's a, usually either like a sergeant or um, an officer because lieutenant and above, they kind of turn into a city management position so they don't count. You get a pretty much, mine was a sergeant. So sergeant rolls up and he sat with me, didn't ask me any questions, just kind of was like coaching me through like, hey, you know, this is what they're going to do. You're going to go back to the station. I'll be with you. You know, he drove me there, you know, went down to my locker, got me my clothes, put them in the room so I could change out of my um, uniform that was now evidence and all that good stuff. They took pictures of me um, and he was in the room for all of it. And <clears throat> just to make sure, because there's a separation when you're, you know, involved in a critical incident, like the department has their job. But, you know, you have to you're now a victim of a crime until otherwise um, or could possibly be a suspect, too. So uh, they take it very, very seriously. They really showed the divide. And, um, you know, we're now legal representation and this is the investigation on this side. So took me back to the to the station. They relieved me of my firearm, obviously, because it's evidence. Uh, but they immediately gave me a new one. Um, that's one of the big things that they used to do is they would take your firearm from you after a shooting. And I didn't experience it, but from what I've heard before is you feel naked. You basically feel like you've taken the only thing that was protecting you away from, from they've taken it away from you. And now you're like vulnerable. So they gave me a, a new firearm, fully loaded, threw it in my holster. And, uh, um, they pretty much sat me in a room and said my lawyer's on the on the way and then the uh legal representation shows up and that's when you know client the he becomes you become the client and essentially uh we discuss what happened we kind of go over what the policies were that i you know have to follow and we take it from there the other side of it after you discuss you know with your lawyer they take you in. They, well, this is my experience. They took me into a room, an interview room, and essentially I was interrogated on what happened. Um, it was a audio recorded um, interview and I spilled out exactly how it was. And there's two detectives <clears throat> and your lawyer. And it's just like you see in the movies, basically. That's the one part that was very similar to the movies, you know. You have two detectives on one side, you and your lawyer are sitting at the table on the other side and they go through their questions. And if your lawyer has any objections to it, he stops you from talking and says, you know, we're not going to answer that question. Keep going. Things like that. Um, after they were done, they had. So I didn't know at the time, but I knew found out later that that interview was live into another room that had the chief of, uh, I think it was a chief or a under chief, someone with stars on their chest, a commander, the uh, district attorney of the county that I worked in, all listening to my interview live. Is that standard? I don't know. I honestly, I couldn't answer that. I thought it was kind of weird. Um, 
because I walked out of the interview and I'll never forget this. One of the commanders, I won't name names, but just gave me the dirtiest look, just looked at me and just, I just got this weird sense of disgust from her. Um, and I just, I don't know why I just remember it, but I remember them all coming out of the room and I'm like, Oh, what are you guys doing here? And then later, six months down the road, I asked my attorney like, Hey, was that recorded live? And he's like, Oh yeah, they were listening to it in the other room. I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> nice to know. I mean, made a difference, but you know, I was like, Oh sweet. They were live feeding into my, uh, my interview. So that was when you were being uh, vetted as a potential, um, I guess, like misdeeds and wrongdoings. That was the the form of that interview. So John, as a lawyer, do they have to disclose to him who's listening? No. Okay, cool. No, detectives can lie to you. They can? Yeah, so can defense attorneys. That's exactly why you have immediately after you have union representation with you because at that point, like, yeah, you're detained. You're detained by your gover- your uh, your um, department, and you're not free to leave. So they can technically ask you questions and not be truthful and say some stuff. That's why another de- another third party from the department comes in and kind of like makes a wall. Like, imagine like you know you're playing basketball with someone and they set a pick. That's basically what they're doing. They're like, no, no, no. Like you can't talk to him until we get his lawyer here and we're back at the station. They kind of like put up a wall between you and the detectives or you and any other um, entity. Well, good. Glad they look out for y'all. They did. They really did. Um, And, you know, it's sad because some, some agencies are just the complete opposite and they just are out to eat you alive. And I'm really grateful. My department, you know, you know, they were pretty objective in the whole thing and they, they played a really good role in, in being able to do their job, which was cool to watch as well. It's a very unique um, experience being on both sides of the aisle at the same time. So does that get kicked down to IA or is that just like a straight up you're potentially like in wrongdoing and they're just doing like criminal proceedings? So, like internal I mean, or external? It's so before um, law enforcement had this scrutiny. I, so my shooting was right on the cusp of when law enforcement like hit a decline. So um, like it goes in swings. So we're on like a, a decline in how great the job is right now. But my shooting happened right before like the super big, uh, I guess you would call it microscope was on law enforcement. So they did it right there. And I guess that's what the live feed was with the district attorney in there. So they took um, my statement and basically I didn't know this at the time, but there was H in that video where the video comes from. I didn't know that there was a video of it and it was HD high quality um, audio visual, like in the middle of, but for better lack of better words, a ghetto. This guy had the best security camera I have ever seen. It was like 4K, <laughs> 1080p audio with yeah. It was like the, the perfect angle. It looked right at the whole thing. 
So I didn't know that this existed. And I don't know if they knew at the time, but it doesn't, doesn't really matter at this point. But I described the shooting almost like it was I was watching it as I was giving my interview. And that was when they were like, no charges are going to be pressed on me. Um, and that was clear. I was, I wasn't officially cleared right off the bat, but I was pretty much clear from the get go. Cause they saw that my interview and my statement matched that video 100%. Right. Uh, so what, what kind of holster do you have now? Yeah. Do you still have the one that flips? Cause we have a holster here that John gave me and it doesn't click in and I'm always afraid of something popping out. So do you have like a preference? So, um, at my current department, they don't mandate. So after that, at that department, they changed policies and now you need a hood and a button. Basically it's like a, uh, trigger release to pull the gun out. And I'm that guy, I made policy. So, um, <laughs> You can call it the Dan policy. So here I actually run the same system because I don't, I'm not dealing with it again. And I, you know, people are like, Oh, but it, it slows down your draw time. And I'm like, okay, three tenths of a second for me to move my thumb. Like, Oh, fine motor skills. Yeah. Well, if you train fine motor skills enough, they don't become, they become non fine motor skills. So I run the hood and the uh, retention button. Whereas most people just run the retention button and I just, it's, you're gambling. You're, you're gambling a lot for three tenths of a second on a draw time. Right. That, that seems negligible. Cause after you practice like someone with a three stage retention system, like you're describing them yeah. practicing is probably a faster draw than someone who's just not really practicing all that much with a normal holster. Right. So if you pra obviously like after that, I'm, I'm that guy that will sit, at home and just put my duty belt on in my underwear and go around drawing, you know, clearing my gun out, just drawing just cause you know, I don't want to be caught with my pants down uh, unless I'm in my house with my underwear on and with my belt. That's the only time that my pants will be down. With my <laughs> there you go. And you got your yeah. gun on you. But yeah, I practice drawing, dry firing, dry, drawing all the time just for that specific reason is cause I'm running more retention than most people. So I have to have, you know, a, a fresh, um, I don't know what you would call it, a, you know, just good reflexes on my own draw style. And that's, yeah, that's awesome, Dan. And I remember when we went shooting, the way you trained was like far beyond anything we were doing. Um, so do you still train like that? Is that one of the key takeaways you think from the, wait, how, how were you training that was different? Well, so like everybody has like their kind of like, oh, I'm a terrible shot. You saw me. Everybody has their own different ways of like stances and holding. But then I remember you were saying that like when you're in a shooting, you're going to be tensed up. And so you kind of have this sort of because when you're if someone's shooting at you, your first reaction is to go Hup, down like that. And so I remember you were kind of like in that position Look, already. I shoot like that too. And drill instructors have always yelled at me for that until I outshot them. And it was just like this head down low kind of thing. And so it's, sure. it's, and I'm not like an expert shooter. There's some people that are way better than me, but I've received some of the best training um, from that large depart department that I was at. And it, the, the one instructor that I always listened to 
or two, there's two instructors that really stuck with me. It's not so much of a head down, it's a shoulders up. Cause, and it's not something that you train. It's just kind of like that stance that I take. Um, and you're basically training to shoot in your, your fight mode, I guess you would say. Cause like if someone comes up behind you and scares you, your first thing's going to be your, it's a primal instinct to protect your neck, to protect your neck. So when you shoot, your, your hands are going to come up and your shoulders are going to come up. So when you shoot in what's called an isosceles position, your hands are, you know, making that triangle and your feet are facing the target with your body armor facing the target and your shoulders are naturally going to come up, you know, to, it's going to, you know, raise everything up to your carotid. Well, Dan, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Any other things like you could, you took away from that or any other crazy situations you can think of? Just train. If anybody that's listening to this is in law enforcement, even, even citizens that are, you know, looking to protect themselves that aren't little sheep that pretend like nothing bad is going to ever happen. Um, train, uh, jujitsu is probably one of the best workouts and it's, you can put it into your life no matter what situation. I'm actually, my wife doesn't know this yet, but my kid is definitely going to be in jujitsu by the time she's three years old. So she doesn't know wow. yet what's happening, but it's just a, an, an, a perishable skill that you always need to train. You know, if, if you're into guns or, you know, want to protect yourself with the gun, you should know it like the back of your hand and, and always be training with it. So any type of training you guys can do, I highly recommend it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Anytime. And for everyone listening, you can always ask us questions or give us suggestions at askroundthecampfire at gmail.com. Ty, anything else? Uh, this video one just felt really good. It did. Dan, thank you for being a part of the, the first video podcast of Round the Campfire. Glad, I'm glad I can be a part of it. <laughs> good to have you. Hopefully I don't look too absolutely not you look beautiful you look incredible all right i'll see you guys remember to put that put that fire out tonight see you next week